Al Jazeera podcast. It's one of the most famous whodunits in the Middle East, and it involves two of the region's most famous families. 45 years ago, on August 31st, one of Lebanon's most important religious leaders disappeared. Imam Musa al-Sadr was a spiritual leader of Lebanon's Shia Muslims, and he vanished without a trace. It was shortly after the start of Lebanon's long civil war, which began in 1975. Desperate to help end the fighting, Sadr had traveled to meet one of the Middle East's power players, Libyan leader Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Sadr's trip to Libya would be his last. But it would link these two families, the Sadr's and the Gaddafi's, for years to come. I'm Kevin Hurton, in from Aliga Bilal, and this is The Take. In 2016, Imam Musa al-Sadr's family filed suit against Hannibal Gaddafi, accusing him of hiding information about the imam's disappearance. Hannibal has been behind bars ever since, but has yet to face trial. On June 3rd, Hannibal stopped eating. He's on a hunger strike, his health is failing, and Libyan authorities are calling for his release. The intricacies of the imam's disappearance have been argued and dissected for more than a generation now. There are a lot of moving parts to this story, and we have just the person to help make sense of it all. I'm Ali Hashim. I'm a correspondent for Al Jazeera. I've been covering the latest developments in the Middle East for the past 20 years. I'm talking to you from my apartment in Beirut, where I'm having my summer vacation. So let's talk about Musa al-Sadr, because he's such an important figure. He's Lebanese-Iranian, but he was born in Iran, which is a central country for Shia Muslims. Sadr then moves to Lebanon in 1959. And, you know, before he arrived, the Shia didn't really have a lot of power, at least compared to the dominant religious sects at that time, the Christians and Sunnis. So, Ali, how did Musa al-Sadr change Lebanon? Well, the reality is that Shia were part of the political system. Now, the problem with with Shias was that the the sect leaders, and here I'm talking about mainly the political leaders, there was no sense of community. This is the main issue. They did not have, uh, let me say, a persona within the Lebanese uh, system. When Musa Sadr came to Lebanon, things started changing. Uh, Why? Because he started working on this social fabric within the sect, trying to integrate it within the Lebanese social fabric in general, uh, trying to reach out to other sects, to other communities, to other areas in order to create this character for the Shias of Lebanon. Musa al-Sadr founded the Shia Council in Lebanon. And in 1975, he established AMAL, a political party and armed group that was meant to defend the Shia community in Lebanon during the Civil War. There is supposed to be a ceasefire in the Lebanon, but it means nothing. There have been 28 ceasefires, and each of them has been followed by even fiercer fighting. 
what was his role during the first years of the Civil War? During the first years of the Civil War, Musa Sadr was a controversial figure then. Yes, he was among the Shias, or let me say, among part of the Shias, a unifying figure. But within the bigger picture of Lebanon, he was a controversial figure. He was part of this, let me say, struggle for Lebanon, starting from 75. Despite the fact he tried to uh, show that he's extending his hand towards the Christians for a kind of a truce and to end this civil war at its beginning, Musa Sadr was trying to show a picture of a unifying figure. But the fact is that there were a lot of complexities, differences, also external factors playing a role in the Lebanese uh, civil war that kind of hurdled his attempts. So, so, so Musa Sadr is opposed to the war that's raging in Lebanon. And in 1978, the war takes a turn Israel invades southern Lebanon, which is Shia territory. The United Nations issued Resolution 425, calling on Israel to withdraw immediately. Israel flouted the UN resolution and set up what it called a security zone in south Lebanon. So then he travels to Libya, and the question is why? He makes a fateful decision to go to Libya to meet with Gaddafi. What did he hope to gain from this trip? He wanted money to fund uh, Amal and get them uh, weapons in order to play a bigger role in the resistance. He thought that with the Israeli occupation of South Lebanon, probably this should change how things are. It's not anymore about the Lebanese civil war. It's not anymore about regional differences. Uh, Now there is a real threat. Israel is in South Lebanon and Gaddafi should help. And Gaddafi was very active in the Lebanese political and security and military arena. He was paying a lot of money to Lebanese factions. So this was Gaddafi's position in the Lebanese civil war. Now, with the Israeli factor coming into the picture, Musa Sadr thought that this is going to maybe create a situation where Gaddafi maybe could help. So it's a risk because he's on the other side of this factional divide that you talked about. But he wants money and he's been told by the Algerian president, hey, you should go and meet with him. So he goes. What happens in those few days where he's actually on the ground in Libya? Well, he was supposed to attend the the 1st of September uh, celebrations, the anniversary of Gaddafi's revolution, whatever he calls, on the monarchy in Libya. Musa Sadr was supposed to attend these celebrations and to meet Gaddafi. He met several people at that hotel where they were staying. I think Hotel Shot, it was called. Uh, And he met many people, many Lebanese politicians, many Lebanese journalists, also some Palestinians, some Jordanians. So many people saw him and everyone knew that Musa Sadr was here to meet Gaddafi. Out of sudden, Musa Sadr disappeared. No one knew about him anything. Everyone thought that he met Gaddafi and left. But later on, no one heard from Musa Sadr. The Libyans came out with a story then that Musa Sadr left to Italy and and his aides. Abbas Badreddin was a journalist and Muhammad Yaqub was an aide of Musa Sadr. So the three disappeared and everyone started asking, where did they go? Shia community felt 
uh, as they were orphans because to them he was the savior he was the messiah he was he was the mati they were waiting for years and he came and out of sudden he just vanished he vanished no one knew anything about him just disappeared evaporated and this trauma can be seen till this moment in Lebanon within the Shia communities, especially the elderly, our fathers, the old guys. They live this mystery. How this guy just disappeared? What we know is in 1978, he travels to Libya. Multiple eyewitnesses have said they saw him in Libya. Then he just vanishes one day. And there are a bunch of wild twists in the story that we don't really have time for, but you just mentioned it's three men left Libya and arrived in Rome with the passports of al-Sadr and his two companions. But this was later found out to be a ruse. I mean, this is like spy movie stuff. Yeah. Um, so fast forward to today. Musa al-Sadr has been missing for 45 years, but his legend, as you said, is, is more powerful than ever, maybe. He's still a, a titanic force in, in the, the community. His supporters still take to the streets to mark the anniversary of his disappearance. So since then, the Lebanese civil war has ended. Libya had a revolution in 2011. The Gaddafis are out of power, which brings us to Muammar Gaddafi's son, Hannibal. So who is Hannibal and how did he end up in a Lebanese prison? Well, Hannibal is one of Gaddafi's sons. He was a businessman during his father's reign in Libya. He was married, by the way, to a Lebanese uh, model. After the fall of Gaddafi, Hannibal and his family moved to Syria, and they were hosted by the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad. However, a few years ago, everyone started hearing about the news of Hannibal being kidnapped. Now, here, here is the, 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 the link with Muhammad Yaqub, the guy who was with Musa Sadr during the trip in 1978. Muhammad Yaqub disappeared with Sadr on that trip. His son, Hassan Yaqub, became a member of the Lebanese parliament. But he's accused of kidnapping Gaddafi's son, Hannibal, luring him to Lebanon from Hannibal's home in Syria. He is accused of kidnapping him, um, tried to interrogate him to, to take some information from him. At the end, he had to hand Hannibal to Lebanese authorities. Now, over here, you have a very uh, delicate and, and complicated issue. I mean, you are uh, uh, kidnapping the guests of the Syrian president. This will have implications, very, very, very uh, dire implications and repercussions. Hannibal Gaddafi and his legal team's efforts to free him from Lebanese prison. That's after the break. On the Inside Story podcast, a plane crashes in Russia with the passenger list including the leader of the Wagner mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and associates. Do we know what really happened? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Ali, what happened to Musa Sadr? Doesn't it stand to reason that Hannibal would have some information? I mean, if you're working around the Libyan government, you would maybe know something. I mean, there are, there are a lot of narratives in, in this regard. We were researching this uh, issue. Rather, aside from reporting, I was researching from university the, the issue of Musa Sadr's uh, disappearance. And we went into just bringing together all the narratives. We had over... 
20 narratives on how Musa Sadr disappeared. But the chance to prove any of those theories is slim, which brings us back to Hannibal Gaddafi in the present day. Hannibal Gaddafi has been in the Lebanese prison for years. But Hannibal is only 47 years old. When Sadr and his companions disappeared, he was only two years old. Yet, Hannibal is facing charges for withholding information on what happened to Sadr. So I asked Ali, what does Hannibal know? Well, the side of the story is that he knew nothing about this case. He doesn't have a lot to say about it. This is what he's been repeating for years now. That's his side of the story, but the other side is that he then worked in his father's administration for years. Yes. So he had access to files, he had access to private uh, intelligence documents, all sorts of stuff. Of course. What I know is that the Syrians have been pressuring and pushing for the release of Hannibal Qadhafi. The family of Sadr are refusing this release, and uh, that's why he's still in jail. Because the family of Sadr think that this guy has a lot of information that he's not, he's not uh, revealing. Right, and, and the family of Sadr still think he might actually still be alive, right? Well, uh, given several conversations that I had with the family of uh, Sadr, his sons, his sister, what they're suggesting is that they can't announce his death without seeing a corpse, without seeing a body. So as far as the, the body isn't here, isn't with them, they, 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 they can't prove that their, uh, their father or their brother is dead. There were uh, several delegations from Lebanon visited Libya. And um, according to the, the uh, officials uh, in Lebanon, uh, there were DNA tests and uh, none of the, the, the suggested corpses that were shown to the Lebanese delegations uh, tested were there were any kind of um, DNA compatibility between them. So let me give you three possible explanations for why he's still in jail. One, authorities think he knows what actually happened to Sadr. Two, it's an act of pure vengeance. Or three, that they can't figure out how to let him out. That it's just politically unpalatable to actually let him out of prison. The three together, yeah. I mean, uh, of course, part of it is an act of vengeance. There is no way uh, for him out without a uh, public outcry and without the, the, the Southern family outcry, that is going to be very big. And also at the same time, there is a kind of, um, let me say, they believe in the fact that it's impossible for someone like Hannibal Khazafi not to know about what happened to Musa Sadr. So the three are together. And now the Libyan attorney general has been calling the Lebanese authorities to release Hannibal Qaddafi. And uh, several uh, Libyan officials sent messages to Lebanese officials through mediators, you know, that there should be a way to reach a solution for this issue. But it's too complicated to be solved. So the reason we're doing this, this story is because Hannibal Gaddafi, who's been in jail now for years, is forcing the issue. He's... 47 years old, but he's now on a hunger strike. Yes. And we're hearing he's very ill. How do you think this hunger strike will move the needle? Do you think this will finally force the government to make a decision on what to do with him? 
when you know Kevin, Lebanon is in a very dire situation. There is no authority really right now ruling the country. So I don't think it's a priority to the Lebanese authorities right now to think of uh, the, the fate of Hannibal Gaddafi. At least this is what I think. I don't see them taking this issue into consideration. Right now they're, they're fighting on many other issues that are more related to the internal strife in Lebanon. Even with the big pressure coming from Syria, and you know the, the impact and the influence that Syria has on Lebanese politicians. But even with this pressure from Syria, they're not moving, they're not doing anything. So this gives us a kind of a indication how much this issue is complicated, to what extent, and why it's really very unlikely to see any solution for it in the near future. I don't see Hannibal's case as a priority for the Lebanese government to, to think of, except if he's on the verge of death. Yeah. And and it does seem that Musa al-Sadr's followers, they're kind of clinging to this guy who was two years old at the time of his disappearance as maybe the last thing that could help solve this mystery. They're looking for any any person, any uh, hole in a, in a big, vast uh, wall to look through to get a kind of a glimpse of what happened to Musa al-Sadr. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Khalid Sultan, David Enders, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. With Miranda Lynn, Faranisa Campana, Amy Walters, Sonia Bagat, Zaina Badr, Chloe K. Lee, and Ashish Malhotra. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. This episode was mixed by Tim St. Clair. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.